when you think great leader. Of this century, depending, we haven't got an outline on there, don't worry about it, it's fine. <laughs> of this century, depending on a, a kind of your political persuasion, your understanding of greatness, I guess you might include in that list someone like Churchill, maybe even Hitler, uh, Gandhi, Martin, Lloyd, um, Martin Luther King Jr., maybe Nelson Mandela. Martin Luther King Jr. once said of, uh, of leadership, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort, but where he stands at the times of challenge and controversy. See, a leader, a great leader, is deemed to be one that is, was there when it matters. Napoleon Bonaparte put it like this, he said, a leader is a dealer in hope. Because the, a great leader will inspire uh, even those who are uninspirable, it seems. In history, our country is littered with such leaders who, with kind of remarkable emotional appeal, have uh, led our country, often into arms, despite our country being completely against that. We're doing right. Yeah, it's just Yeah, turn Anyone else hear that? Is it just me that's getting put off? Right. Hello. <laughs> is, it, is it there? Should we try? Is that better? One, two. It's still echoing. We could all just sit on this side of the chair. <laughs> you might have to deal with it, I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm sorry. A little momentary break there. Should we come back to it? Yeah, that'll be all right now. Okay. Yeah, so going back, our, our history of this country is littered with numerous people um, who, with great emotional appeal, have led, led our country into arms, whether we liked it or not, because they, they, a great leader can lead with eloquence. They're persuasive, aren't they? They are dealers of hope, as Napoleon put it, whatever is to come. One famous example of this is, of course, the 4th of June, 1940. Churchill addresses the, na the nation in front of Parliament after the withdrawal of the British and French troops from Dunkirk. You know this well. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall, we shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. History has given us numerous examples. Richard I and the Crusades... Uh, Queen Elizabeth I at the time of the Armada, Pitt the Younger in the Napoleonic Wars, Churchill in 1940. Great leaders are eloquent, they're erudite, they're brave, they're persuasive, even manipulative. Because in a great leader's mind, in the world, the end justifies the means. If the, if the goal of the, elder, of the leader is reached. As many of you know, I've been reading the biography of Steve Jobs, the... Uh, the founder, the CEO of, of Apple Computers, you know, the guy who made the Macintosh, the I, iPhone and everything else I that we probably own as well. Um, and he will no doubt be remembered as one of the greatest leaders of, of certainly our era. And he bore the hallmarks of a great leader from very early on. He was a very intelligent man, emotionally intelligent as well, single-minded in his pursuit of those kind of pure, clean lines, very influenced by the kind of Bauhaus movement. Um, but he always matched those kind of clean lines with all the kind of technological gadgetry as well that we all like. And the thing that I suppose marks him it was his, his simplicity of use. That's what he wanted. 
in everything that he did. It had to be intuitive. But when you read his biography, and I'm kind of like 600 pages through it now, um, you, kind of, you can't help but be impressed by a man who ignores everyone at various times in his life. Um, even when they told him he absolutely stank because he was a fruitarian, only ate fruit and didn't believe in deodorant for about 10 years of his life, even though he, he absolutely reeked, he wouldn't believe anyone for about 10 years of his life until he got married. <laughs> I mean, there are numerous occasions where he said, it, everyone said, it just won't work. Uh, they said it would kill the company. They said consumers didn't want it. So how did he respond? He just said, well, we need to teach them that they want it. He ignored Bill Gates on a number of occasions. He ignored the board of Apple. He ignored the engineers at Pixar and Apple. And on numerous occasions, he even ignored those closest to him, those who he loved in his family. He always followed his intuition. And I, I kind of think that's what made him great in some ways. And in other ways, not at all. Steve Jobs was a leader of, of people. And, and in Silicon Valley, many people responded to his leadership uh, with utter disgust. He was manipulative and pretty awful to many people. But some people were delighted under his leadership and admired him in so many ways. But his greatness will not be marked by his man management, but rather by the products uh, that he has um, intuitively um, conceived. Arguably millions of us have followed that leadership. We've made lifestyle choices and he has changed the world to some degree. But none of that should surprise us because that's the way that we've been made in some ways. God has created us to live in communities, um, in a society, to, to be dependent upon one another, to be led and also to lead. And from the Garden of Eden to the patriarchal families uh, with their leading heads of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob through to the leaders of God's people, Moses and the great warrior leader of Joshua, who was a type of Christ, and, and leaders are chosen to follow people. Sorry, other way around. Leaders are chosen and people follow, and all that kind of stuff. There were then judges up to Samuel, and then God's people cried out for a king. God relented, anointed Saul, then you get David, Solomon, and many, many other kings. The lists are there, some good, some bad. Some led God's people so well, some did terrible things. God would then lead through prophets and rabbis later and the disciples who would then become apostles, the sent ones of the risen and glorified Christ. They were uniquely empowered by God's Holy Spirit to lead. See, throughout salvation history, God has created, created us in community. There is a, a plurality to the way that we live in our existence that requires a leadership. And this is, of course, mirrored in God himself. As persons of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they live in relationship with one another in, in equality, but they submit to the leadership or to, to the Father's will. And as image bearers of God in his creation, we should expect to lead, but also to be led. Of course, this will be imperfectly worked out in us, as it was on numerous occasions throughout the leadership in the Bible, through kings and and, uh, and judges and all the other uh, various sorts. But there are seldom times in history where, where we, whether we look in the Bible or whether we look in history uh, in our culture, where 
where leadership is not exercised at all. Whether in a democracy or an autocratic state or a theocracy, a leadership vacuum is very rare indeed. And some would argue it's impossible. And that essentially is pure anarchism, isn't it? Anarchism, whichever one that is. And um, that has only existed in, in very few situations. One time, Spanish Civil War, 1930s, in Barcelona. It happened for a while, but leaders came out. They came to the fore very naturally and very, very quickly. We are made to lead and to be led. And as image bearers of God, therefore we should expect nothing else within the church. But what does that look like? What ought to be the defining characteristics and responsibilities of leadership within the church? I mean, should we see any difference as we look down throughout history between what we see in the world and what we should see in the church? What does our culture views as great leadership and what the Bible views as great leadership? Should they be different? Are they different? So we come full circle to that opening question. Who are the people that come to your mind when you think of great leader in the church? Well, that is what Paul is about to let Titus know in this letter now. Paul, having introduced himself, we looked last week, as the authentic servant of God and apostle of Christ, who was appointed to make the authentic gospel known. Remember what that was? Faith in God and knowledge of the truth of God from his word. And that is worked out in a godly life. Paul now writes to the church in Crete, and of course mainly to Titus here, who he's left there to do a job. What's the job? Look at verse 5. The reason I left you there in Crete was to put, uh, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now we see here that Crete is probably made up of uh, numerous uh, house churches in the numerous towns scattered over the island of Crete. But why appoint elders? Why the necessity for this form of leadership? Elders in that, culture, in that culture had kind of a legal responsibility. I guess we might remember the story of Ruth. We just looked at that a few weeks ago now. In chapter 4, do you remember Boaz? He approached the elders at the town gate, didn't he? To redeem Naomi and Ruth from their destitute state. Because elders in that culture acted as judiciary um, in each town. Amongst God's people, but also in neighbouring cultures as well. It wasn't unique to God's people. But when we get to the New Testament church, elders were first appointed, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 11, verse 30 onwards. Everyone would have known the expectations of an elder. It was a common term, had been for centuries. They knew the expectations of the man appointed. It was a high calling and a very big responsibility. But that is what Titus uh, was to do, appoint elders in every town. But, but for what specifically? Now, I think the key to this passage comes in verse 9. If you cast your eyes down to that, we'll look at that more as we go through. But I think it's the key to the whole section. In verse 9, we see the three main responsibilities of the elder, of the office of elder within the New Testament church. They are to hold firmly to sound doctrine, encourage others in sound doctrine, and refute those who oppose sound doctrine. Of course, the sound doctrine that the elders are, hold, are to hold on to and encourage others in and refute those who oppose it 
That sound doctrine is what he's explained in his introduction at the beginning of the letter. That faith uh, and that knowledge of the truth that leads to the godly life, uh, resting on the hope of the eternal life. That's what Paul has preached to them. That's what he's delivered to them. And that's what the scripture speaks of. That's the sound doctrine he wants to um, hold on to, encourage in others and refute those who oppose it. So we're going to focus on those three responsibilities. I hope we'll see their necessity, but also the qualities of an elder that needs to be appointed in order to meet these responsibilities. So this is what, if you like, great leadership looks like within the church of God today. So firstly, uh, our first point, uh, to appoint elders to hold firmly to sound doctrine. As we saw last week, authentic Christian faith and trusting in the knowledge of the truth of what God has done for us supremely in this gift of his son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross, that belief based on truth will be worked out in a life for God. In authentic Christian faith, there cannot be that separation between what we believe and how we behave. We're not perfect. No, we're not. But that must be the, uh, the intention of our lives, and we must struggle toward that end. And likewise in the elder, the integration between what we believe and uh, the way that we live, our behaviour, must be for all to see. And that is the critical element. Perfection is not required because it, of course, will never be found in any of us. But the repeated use, I don't know if you saw it in verse 5 onwards, of that term blameless shows that eligibility for the leadership role in the church is for those who are literally, the word says, unblemished. Now, that can't mean, can it, without blemish. Um, But it was understood, as it should be now, to be someone, if you like, without blame. Other translations put it like this, um, of being unimpeachable or having unquestioned integrity. If you've got an ESV, um, English Standard Version Bible, which is a great version, they would say it's above reproach. See, public reputation for the leader of a church is important and therefore any appointment to elder this position we're looking at within the the church should be done with the diligence that you might have if you were selecting a cabinet member or something like that. Knowing that all the red top uh, media will be, be looking out for you to try and dig up the dirt as much as possible. An elder is to be blameless, verse 6. And they continue, we're going to run through some of these things now. The husband of but one wife. Now, that doesn't exclude anyone who is single, um, who hasn't been married, but the elder must have a good reputation in, in the whole of their, the area of relationships in their lives. Going on, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Parents, of course, are responsible for the belief and the behavior of their children. Uh, and elders ought to prove themselves in that ministry or a kind of a similar ministry, whether that's a Sunday school or a, a small group or whatever that may be, before they take on the responsibility of the whole church and leading that. And elders, of course, whose parents cannot be expected to, to manage, sorry, elders who are the parents, who are parents, they can't be expected to manage a church if they can't manage their own family themselves. Many of you will know John Piper, who's a very famous preacher over in America. Uh, about three or four years ago, he stood down as the pastor of his church for about six months because um, I don't know what exactly went on, um, but he, he quoted from these verses and said, my child is being wild and disobedient. 
and he stood down from the responsibility and stopped being paid from the, by the church for six months for that. Going on, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. That's kind of concluding that little section there. But note the use of the term overseer here. Did you see that? In the original, that's the word episkopos, which basically um, our word bishop comes from that word. So we've got elder, verse 6, uh, which in the original is a presbyteros, if you don't, don't worry about that. And overseer in verse 7, where we get our name bishop from. But in, in the New Testament church, whether you look in 1 Timothy or in Titus, you see those words are interchangeable. Um, the term elder basically refers to a seniority, a standing within society. And the term overseer refers to the role. And to use both together actually makes more sense of the role of an elder, if you like. So, you know, you, you basically are an elder overseer. That re really would make more sense. Because one speaks of the person, of their standing, and one speaks of the role, their function, their leadership within the church. They're to be blameless, above reproach. But what does that look like, really specifically now? And that's where we get to verse 7. Verse 7 trips off this number of kind of character and, and, character and conduct traits that you'd, uh, ought to be expected within, the, within an elder. There are 11 words which pop up, in singular Greek words that come up here now. And, and five are, are negative and six are positive. But they, if you like, unpick the character that ought to be demonstrated uh, of the, in an elder. So firstly, not overbearing, it says. Going to very quickly run through these. That basically means you, you will know not, not being stubborn or arrogant. See, the temptation in leadership is to be too kind of too self-absorbed, and therefore you become autocratic in your leadership. Putin-esque, we might want to say. Secondly, we want not to be quick-tempered. There are of course always frustrations, aren't there? When you gather a bunch of human beings together, you know, we're all kind of sinful, aren't we? We always kind of rub each other up the wrong way. People are difficult to lead sometimes. You will know that probably from your workplaces. And you are probably difficult to lead or, you know, to, to be led. But an elder must not lose their rag easily. Thirdly, not to be given, not given uh, to drunkenness. It was very sad to read in the newspaper yesterday morning of uh, a quite a high-profile um, evangelical who was uh, a Christian leader who was confessing their dependence on alcohol. I don't know if you saw that. It was very sad indeed. But the temptation is always there. And I guess we all know that. Fourthly, not violent. Because leadership in God's church is by example. It is not by force. It is leadership through humble service, not through physical dominance, or probably more prevalent psychological manipulation. Fifthly, not pursuing dishonest gain. If an elder starts charging for the Bible studies on a Tuesday night, you probably want to have a word with them. Their motivation is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ for his glory alone. So you get five negatives, what an elder should not be in their conduct and their character. And now you get six positives followed in verse 8. Rather, you see the turnaround there. Rather, he must be hospitable. Their, well, their home should be a welcoming home. One who loves what is good. That is, one who loves to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, in the church, but also in the world around. They should be known as a doer of good. 
Titus will go on to speak more of that later on in chapter 3. One who is self-controlled, thirdly. One who has kind of a sober judgment in life and is disciplined in their lifestyle for all to see. It should be obvious and plain. One who is upright, that is honest. I suppose one might say honourable in times gone by. In all their dealings with people. They ought to be holy, you see that? Uh, fifthly, committed in their attitude, in their life for God. And sixthly, disciplined. Now this word is a different word to the self-control word of, uh, of um, the third word there. It is actually a, a phrase that was used, it's kind of a catch-all. Because what it's doing is it's summarising everything that has come before it. The elder, of course, cannot be perfect. But they must be an example in all of these. Disciplined in their faith. One who prioritises their faith. And as in verse 9 uh, says, to kind of show the, the outworking of that, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. See, what we see here at the end is, a, is that marrying together of belief and behaviour is lived out as the foundation of biblical leadership in God's church. The blameless character and conduct of the elder is matched with that equal kind of determination to hold firmly to the message that has, has defined them and made them. To hold firmly to the message of the gospel in their life, but also in their teaching. So why do they need to be above reproaching in character, holding firmly to that message? Why? Well, because secondly, they're appointed to encourage others in sound doctrine. Secondly, to, appoint, um, uh, to encourage others in sound doctrine. You see that in verse 9, the second half of that. And the point is simple. Uh, the elders uh, lead the church not in their only in their decision-making, but also with their lives, and most importantly, through their teaching. This point is uh, not a massive one in the text, but it does help us apply this passage more widely than just Rob and John and, and, my, and myself, who are the elders in this church. I guess leadership in the church will not be for all of us, but we must have appropriate kind of expectations of the leaders. We must all pray for them and know that they have susceptibilities and do everything we can to support them. But more personally, I think we all, we all need to know that elders are to encourage every one of us with sound doctrine. So if, you see, if your life strays outside of the realms of what is biblical or appropriate for someone who's been saved by Christ, do not expect encouragement as you might be feeling at that time. But perhaps some loving rebuke may be in order, which is encouragement in the end. Likewise, sometimes we need to be less British than we often are and accept encouragement uh, and not be sort of kind of hold people at arm's length. You know, when and where is needed in our, in our lives, we need to accept the, the sound doctrine of an, of an elder or someone else to say, I need to teach you here what God says about how you're living, the way you're making decisions and so on. The elders are there to encourage. But they're also there to encourage us to be, to be positive about our lives with and in Christ. Delighting to be a child of God so that you are delighted to be a child of God. But an elder must be allowed to ask the questions. Sometimes difficult and penetrating ones that you may feel are a little bit too personal for British culture. Too meddling. 
I would ask yourself to make a note to self. I have to do this because the elders ask me questions and I ask them questions. Make a note to yourself when a difficult question is asked. It is not asked just because they're nosy meddlers. It is asked because they are an elder and they've been appointed to encourage you in sound doctrine, in a life that follows sound doctrine. Why? So that you might shine for Christ too. You might delight to serve him and live for him. Sound, sound doctrine, it sounds dull, doesn't it? It sounds so dry and dismal at times. Sound doctrine. You know, I, I should be wearing a suit when I say that word. But actually, Titus shows us again and again, uh, more in chapter 3, that sound doctrine, understanding the truth of God's word, clearly will produce a life that pleases God all the more, that gives God more glory. But for us, that will be a life which is so much fuller, so much more pleasing, full of joy and of contentment and peace. Because when we follow sound doctrine, we won't be fighting against the creator God and all that he longs for us in our lives. Lastly then, appoint elders to refute those who oppose Sound doctrine. Verses 10 to 16 are kind of uh, pointing us here. They present us with the main issue in Crete. Verses 10 to 16. There are false teachers there. Who are they? Verse 10. They're rebellious, we see. They're deceiving. They're in the church. They are an empty talking group of Jewish leaders who are basically obsessed with the ceremonial law. You see that because they're part of the circumcision group. They taught, and we see that, not necessarily with circumcision, but we see this similar kind of teaching today in many areas of the church. You're a Christian? Yeah? Are you really a full Christian? Uh, Do you really know the full blessing of God? You haven't done this. You haven't exercised that spiritual gift. Um, You you don't go to that certain place or pray in this particular way. You can't be a full Christian, surely? Well, that was the kind of deceiving, empty-talking, Jewish ceremonial law-keeping people that were in the church in Crete. Their character is the complete opposite of the elder in God's church, as we can see there. And as a result, it's strong, isn't it? I mean, Titus is asked that they be rebuked sharply. That's not very politically correct, is it? Uh, And why? To bring them back to sound doctrine. So that they might enjoy a life living for God. And know all the peace and contentment that comes from that. See that in verse 13. Bring them back. So you should expect me and the elders to say some difficult things about certain ministries or people that we hear about. Not to be slanderous about them. But in protection uh, for everyone here. But also, as we speak to them, to bring them back to sound doctrine. See, an elder must refute. These men opposing the truth of the gospel were, if you like, as I mentioned this last week, they're kind of ritual without reality. They've got all the claims, but they have no character. They're faith, but they don't seem to have any works. 
See, the true, Christian has, the true Christian faith has its origin in what is divine, not in what is man-made. And this is this Jewish myths here in verse 14. The true Christian faith, is, in its essence, is an inward faith. It is a spiritual faith. It's born of our spirit and, and the spirit of God working in us. It is not the outward ritual that matters, which is what they were pointing the people in church in Crete toward in circumcision. And the true Christian faith, in its result, works itself out in a life that is utterly transformed by the Spirit of God and the Word. It is not just in formal religion. Verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You see, in order to finish this work and establish the church on Crete, Titus was asked to appoint Elders, they were to hold firmly to sound doctrine, to encourage the church in sound doctrine, and also to refute those who opposed sound doctrine. Does that look like a great leader to you? Well, let's finish very briefly looking at the leadership in in God's church. Firstly, I I want to encourage you, please pray for us who are elders in in Christchurch Hillsfield. Be thankful for your elders. They work hard for you. And if 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, which is kind of the other passage looking at elders uh, in the pastoral epistles, is anything to go by, the devil hates them and will do everything he can to trap them. Please pray for your elders. Secondly, aspire to leadership in the church in whatever capacity you are able. We'll look at that more uh, next week and the roles of, of male and female. I know that might be a contentious issue, but we'll look at that more next week. But as you aspire to leadership, do so with the traits of an elder in mind. A famous megachurch leader recently from America commentated on the church in this country saying this. These are harsh words. Let's just say this. Right now, name for me one young, good Bible teacher that is known across Great Britain. You don't have one. That's the problem. There are a bunch of cowards who aren't telling the truth. Very, very famous theologian and a very gracious man called Don Carson, responded in the defense of the church in this country, giving numerous examples of brave young preachers telling the truth. But I think his last observation was very illuminating, and it speaks very much of what we should understand of leadership in the church uh, today. He says this, We must not equate courage with success, or even youth with success. We must avoid ever leaving the impression that these equations are valid. I've spent too much time in places like Japan or in parts of the Muslim world where courage is not measured on the world stage, where a single convert is reckoned a mighty trophy of grace. I'm grateful beyond words for the multiplication of churches in a particular, I won't mention which one, but a particular kind of church planting movement. But I'm no less grateful for Baptist ministers like my dad, men who labored very hard and saw very little fruit for decades in French Canada, many of whom went to prison. I find no ground for concluding that missionaries in Japan in the 20th century were less godly, less courageous, less faithful than the missionaries in what became South Korea with its congregations of tens of thousands. At the final great assist, God will take into account not only all that was and is, but also what might have been under different circumstances. Just as the widow who gave her might may be reckoned to have given more than many multi-millionaires, So, I suspect, some ministers in Japan, or Yorkshire, 
he mentioned Yorkshire earlier on, but it's not very special. Don't worry about it. Um, <clears throat> I suspect some ministers in Japan or Yorkshire will receive greater praise on that last day than those who served faithfully in a corner of the world where there was more fruit. Moreover, the measure of faithful service is sometimes explicitly tied in Scripture, not to the quantity of fruit measured in numbers, but to such virtues as self-control measured by the use of one's tongue. And he uses James 3 in his example. Let's not be confused what great leadership looks like in the church. In a world where charisma matters more than content, where numbers mean more than faithful, blameless living, let us see that leadership in the church is great when the leader is above reproach and is holding firmly to sound doctrine and is encouraging others in sound doctrine and refuting those who oppose sound doctrine. Let us not use any other means to understand greatness in the leadership in God's church. I've probably said enough. I'm sure there are points of clarification. I thought it would be wise, given the topic, that we um, open up. Would anyone like to ask any questions at all on uh, leadership in the church, as we've seen here today? Perhaps issues of...